continue the, the journey that the Lord has set us on. As we look at Matthew chapter 11, to me it's one of the, or it's the beginning anyway, of one of the sad sections in Scripture. We, we see the Matthew presenting to the nation of Israel their king, the long-awaited king, the Messiah, the promised one they've been waiting for. And as they present him, they, they present his person we see in the beginning of first four chapters. Then he presents his principles in chapter 5 through 7, or, or the words that he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Then in chapters 8 and 9, he shows forth his, his power and the miracles that he, that he brings forth, especially in the region of the Galilees, as he brings sight to the blind and he heals the leper and and, uh, and the lame run like a deer. All these things told of, foretold in the prophecies in Isaiah and various other places through the Psalms as well. And, and as we take a look at all those things, we see so much promise. In chapter 10, we see Jesus then take his disciples and he sends them out as ambassadors. And literally what we'll see happening is the disciples will go into a town before Jesus really comes in and begins to teach and do all that groundwork, reaching out to people, you know, uh, person to person, and just really doing a work. And then Jesus will come in and begin to share and do a variety of things in those areas as he follows the disciples through. But in chapter 11, we see the beginning of the rejection of the Messiah. We're going to see the rejection all the way through 11 and, and on into to chapter 12 and then at the end of chapter 12 there's this distinction in his teaching you see up until and through chapter 12 it's very straightforward but beginning in chapter 13 jesus begins to teach in parables because they don't perceive they don't understand they don't see and they're rejecting their king so it's, it's a sad section of Scripture. And, it, and, and the sadness of it, for me, begins with John the Baptist. You guys all remember John the Baptist, right? Rough and tumble guy, the forerunner to the Messiah. But in chapter 11, John the Baptist has a crisis of faith. Uh, you and I have that same crisis. This is how that crisis works. When God does something or allows something that we don't understand. And we can't reconcile it. And we say to ourselves, how can a loving God allow whatever? Now, every one of us has had that experience. Some of us are having that experience right now. Right now. We have <clears throat> over at, uh, at, at the hospital in Twin, Jeannie Reynolds maybe finishing out her battle with cancer and surrounded by family who love her, friends who love her, who may have the same questions working on, on them as John the Baptist had working on him. Well, God, why? Why has it got to be like this? Why, why does it have to be hard? What's going on? Why... Why are you allowing these things? And folks, there's no easy answer to that. Let me tell you what Jesus does with it. As we study, we'll see. He doesn't answer. He just says, Blessed is the one who is not offended because of me. God's call for us then is the same now. Blessed is he who's not offended because of me, who trusts me, who holds on to the promises that God has given us and holds on to those and claims them and believes those promises more than the pain in their heart, the sorrow that they're going through. The one that holds on to the promises where the Lord declares, I will never leave you or forsake you. The promises that say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. One day, every one of us will be absent from the body. One day, every one of us will be face to face with our King. But so often we live our life here 
as though that was the dream. And this is the reality. And the truth is, this is not the reality that we need to be clinging to. That is. Now, sometimes it's hard to grasp, but I'll tell you this. If God chooses to call Jeannie home, it will be the greatest day in her life. It won't be the greatest day in ours. That's okay. I'm going to celebrate for my sister who opens her eyes and sees her Savior. Because one day, you and me, we're going to do the same thing. And I'm hoping that the Lord chooses not to take us one at a time, but all at once. I'm looking forward to the sound of the trumpet, the call of our name as God calls us home. But until that time, I am not going to cling to this world and the stuff of this world as though everything that occurs here has eternal ramifications. The reality is, I want to live for there. I want to live for the Lord. I want to live for heaven, not here. But it's so hard to take our eyes off of that, isn't it? But you see, that's where the rubber meets the road of our faith. When the realities that we're facing and the struggles that we're going through bring us to the point where where we have to make a decision. I'm either living for here and living for this, living for what I can touch and feel and have, or I'm going to live for that which I can't. And I'm going to trust in Him. Well, that's the same thing we see in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 begins, it says, Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. So he's following the disciples. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? You hear what's going on with John? Where does he reach out to Jesus from? prison right he sends to jesus in prison now i want you to think about john's ministry john he comes out and he and he tells it like it is he says that the judgment of god is coming that the messiah the kingdom of god is at hand he points to jesus and he says behold the lamb of god that takes away the sin of the world but all these things that he says the rubber of the road of faith is met When he faces Herod and he tells Herod he's living a life of sin and he gets thrown into jail. And I'm sure day one of his time in jail, he says, you think this is going to work, Herod? Wait till Jesus finds out. Wait till Jesus finds out I'm here in prison. Wait till the Son of God comes down. He'd take these prison doors right off their hinges. And I'll walk right out of here. And he began to hear about the things Jesus was doing. He began to hear about him raising the dead. He began to hear about lepers being cleansed. Yet, he sat in prison. The God who has all power in the universe, who only has to whisper a word, and John would be set free. But he's still there. And so from prison, he sends a message to Jesus. In essence, the message is... Quite simply, I thought you were the Savior. Are you going to save me? Are you going to deliver me from the hurts and the heartaches and the, and the issues that I'm going through? Lord, don't you know I'm here in the darkness of this prison? I was a servant for you. I've done whatever you asked me to do. And here I am in prison. Lord, I did whatever you told me to do. And yet the, I went to the doctor and he said, Cancer. Lord, I've I've given my life to you and to serve you. And nonetheless, I find myself in this darkness where I have to decide, do I really trust God? You see, we can say the words that the scripture lays out for us, that we're to walk by faith and not by sight. Woohoo, that's easy. We get excited about it. Can you do it in reality? 
Can you say, I walk by faith and not by sight while you look at someone you love who's dying? Who's going home? Can you walk by faith? Our tendency, and John's tendency here, was to then begin to look at ourselves and how things affect us. And forget about how things affect others. To recognize that when I gave my life to Jesus Christ and I said, Lord, you're my Savior and I present myself to Him, I'm saying to Him, God, use me. Whatever way you need to use me. Whatever capacity I need to feel. But you see, those are all words until the action comes and God calls and God directs and God says, this is my call for your life. This is the road I want you to walk. This is the way your life is going to affect people around you. And then we find out. We find out if I truly, really am able to walk by faith. And there have been times we, just like John, call out to God. Lord, are you the one? Or do I look for another? You know, I thought living a life of a Christian meant I wasn't going to have to deal with all these things. I've heard people say it. Well, if I knew my life was going to be this hard, well, I might as well not be a Christian at all. I might as well just live like a pagan. Then you're living for here. This is all you can think of, the the things that you can touch, the things that you can smell, the things that you can see, and you lose sight of the things which are eternal, that which you can't see, that you can't touch. That's the kingdom Jesus came to proclaim. That's the kingdom he's proclaiming here before John. So Jesus says to those who come to him, he says, listen, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. Exactly how Matthew portrayed him to us. What you hear, chapters 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount. The words Jesus taught, greatest teaching ever given. And the deeds, the things you've seen Jesus do. The power moving through his life. The fact that he was able to touch the blind and make him see. But he did not touch every blind man and give him sight. The fact that he was able to heal the sick, but he did not heal every sick man. The fact that he was able to touch and raise up the lame, but he did not raise up every lame man. The fact that he was able to raise the dead, but he did not raise every dead man. The power of God. The words of God. He says, you tell John these things. You tell him that the blind see. Why does he say that? Because, folks, the scripture declared to us, when the Messiah comes, the blind will see. The lame will leap like a deer. The leper will be cleansed. No leper had been cleansed hundreds and hundreds of years. In Jesus' ministry, ten in one day. I mean, that's an announcement that something is going on. But it is not a promise that God will remove every hurdle in our life. Every obstacle that we face. Every difficulty that we have to undergo. He won't remove all of those, but He removes from us the sting of death. The sting of death. See, death doesn't have a sting anymore, especially for the life of a believer. Death has no sting. Because the scripture declares to us, absent from the body, present with the Lord, forever and ever and ever. We don't have to worry about them. But we have to finish our race. We have to finish that which God has given us. John has a role still to play. His life is not over. His witness is not finished. 
So Jesus says, you tell him that the blind see and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. For years, I would read that last phrase and I say, I just don't understand what he's saying. Now I know. John, I'm not coming for you. I'm not going to set you free from the prison. I'm not going to spare you from Herod's hand. I'm not going to stop the events that are going to take place. I'm not going to do those things, but I want you to know, I want you to understand, I am the Savior. And so, John has a choice to make. But you see, what Jesus goes on to say is, the rejection of the Messiah began and is beginning with the rejection of his prophet. Where was the forerunner to Jesus? In Herod's prison. Why? Because he told the truth. God's not going to save him or spare him. It's all part of God's plan. It's all part of God's purpose that God is doing a work and we don't always get the answers to it. But God says, blessed is he who's not offended because of me. Blessed is he. Oh, how happy is the one who trusts me even though... It doesn't work out the way they want. Even though the answer doesn't come. Happens every day. Exactly what is occurring in Jesus' life here and in John's life here. It occurs all the time. But then Jesus is saying to him, you're going to die in that prison. Is that the end of John? What does the Bible say? To be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. Hey John, I know it don't seem like it. But you're about to have the best day you've ever had. Won't look like it. Others may not think so. But for you, it's going to be glorious. Then Jesus begins to talk about the prophet. He says, and as they departed, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Did you go out to see a guy who every time there was a change of opinion, that's why you'd go see him? And Jesus begins to talk about John the Baptist. Why did you go see him? Today, I get so tired of hearing people just say what they want. They think everybody wants them to hear. They change, they blow with every wind. Whatever the wind of popular opinion is, that's what they say. But I wasn't John. Jesus said, did you go see him because he was always changing his mind, blowing around with every wind of doctrine? No, that's not why. Then he asked again, what did you, what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Did you go see a rich man or a rich ruler who had all these fancy duds and built all these fancy homes? Is that what you went out to the wilderness to see? So he asked the question a third time. What did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I say to you, yet more than a prophet... For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Malachi 3.1 lays out for us that, that there would be a forerunner to the Messiah. And that forerunner, Jesus is declaring to them, He is Messiah, and not only am I Messiah, but John the Baptist is the forerunner. John the Baptist is the one who is gone. And John the Baptist is end, the end of an era. John the Baptist is the close of the Old Testament. John the Baptist is the last of the prophets that God would send. He says in verse 11, Assuredly I say to you, among those, <coughs> excuse me, born of women, 
There has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus is saying, John the Baptist, greatest man ever born. But then he turns, not so much talking about the individual, but what's going on, the passing of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant or the law, and the issuing in or the entrance of the New, the New Testament, the New Covenant, the Gospel of Grace. And so he says, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is is greater than him because this New Testament, this new move that God is bringing is greater than that of the old. The old has been completed. It's, it's finished. It's being closed. But the new, the new is being opened. And even as he lays this out before them, he says, and I want you to know, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. It says there's two things that are going to mark the kingdom of heaven. The two things as they're rejecting his prophet. And he's in prison and ultimately he's going to die. He says there's two things that are going to mark the church. One, it's always going to be persecuted. It's going to suffer violence. Now sometimes the true church suffered violence from the false church. People have a struggle with that when they look at church history and they see all the, the dumb things that was done in the name of the church. But that's not the church. Just because you put the word church out in front of a building doesn't make it a church. The church is the body of Christ. The body of Christ never marched across history killing people in the name of Jesus Christ. Never did. False church did. Just because you hang a name over your door or you put a fish sticker on the back of your car doesn't mean that everything you do is going to represent Christ, does it? No, I don't. He says the church will be marked by this. Persecution on one hand and on the other hand, violent or forceful men are going to try to make the kingdom happen. They're going to try to make it happen. And that's exactly what we see going on in history. One, the church persecuted. Two, violent men or forceful men trying to make the kingdom of heaven happen. We can't make it happen. The kingdom of heaven will happen when the king comes. If the king is not here, there will be no kingdom here. I don't care what you do. I don't care what we try. We have a responsibility a thing that God has called us to do, that we need to be doing, that we need to be applying in our life. And as we do that, we get closer to the coming of the king. But we can't usher in the kingdom. We can't make it happen by will of force, trying to to reach out and make something occur simply because we desire it to happen. But God's word goes on and says at the close of this age, in the next verse, he says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied till when? Until John. John the Baptist is the close of the Old Testament. Really, for for most of us, our division of the Old Testament comes right at the end of Malachi. But it actually occurs... When John the Baptist is beheaded, the Old Testament passes. The law and the prophets was until John. But now, now comes grace. Now comes what all of the Old Testament embodied, what all of the Old Testament pictured, what it drew for us, what it teaches us. Now it's fulfilled. Here we have Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, standing before his people. But they're going to kill his prophet. Just like they've always done. Jesus goes on to say, If you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. John the Baptist functioned in the fulfillment of Elijah. He dressed like Elijah. He brought a message like Elijah. The scripture lays out for us in Malachi that Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now that's the tribulation period. That's why most people believe that Elijah will be one of the two prophets that we read about 
or the two witnesses that we read about in the book of Revelation. But Jesus says, right now, John the Baptist, if you can handle it, John the Baptist is Elijah. He has come. He has been the forerunner. He has acknowledged and pointed the way to the Messiah. He has declared the truth. So let him who has ears, let him hear. Jesus' teaching from this point is going to change. It's going to change because the people are rejecting the truth. In fact, he begins to tell a little parable. He says, oh, what shall I like in this generation? Let me think. It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions. And this is what they say. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned for you and you did not lament. He says it's like children talking to their friends. And the children played the flute. That was what they would do at at a wedding. It was a time of joy. So they said, well, we came to you in joy and playing a flute with joy, but you wouldn't dance. So we thought, well, maybe this is a time of mourning. So then it turns from wedding to funeral. And so it says in the funeral, we mourn for you, but you wouldn't lament. What's he saying? No matter what we do, you're never happy. No matter what, for some people, no matter what heaven has done no matter what god has done in their life they're not happy i played the flute for you but you wouldn't dance and i mourned but you you wouldn't mourn you wouldn't lament no matter what occurs they're not satisfied when the scripture says what shall i say about this generation it always has a connotation of unbelief the generation that doesn't believe, that, that just can't wrap their hands around the truth of what God is doing, what God wants to accomplish in people's lives. So he says, he gives them the example in verse 18, For John came neither eating or drinking, and they said, He has a demon. Here's what they said about John. He's too extreme. You ever thought that about a believer? Somebody, you look at him, you think, man, that guy's too extreme. Wow, he's way out there. Too extreme. That's what they said about John. Almost they say, well, he's too holy. Or he thinks he's too holy, one or the other. But that's always the comment that would come from that. The Lord says, look, I, I sent him, and he didn't come to you eating and drinking. He had the message, and you rejected him. You said he has a demon. He has a demon. He's a knucklehead. He's, he's way too extreme. He eats locusts and honey, for crying out loud. He wears camel skin. I mean, he just doesn't fit in. We like his message, and he's a little crazy. He'll say anything to anybody, so we'll go listen to him, because he'll call the king out on the carpet, man. He told the king he couldn't marry who he married, and he'll say anything to anybody, but he's too extreme. It says in verse 19, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you've said, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinner. But wisdom is justified by her children. John came and you said he's too holy and too extreme. Jesus came and you said he's not holy enough. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We mourned for you and you wouldn't lament. The Lord saying, no matter what we did, you weren't happy. No matter how we came, no matter how we moved. And then he gives us this this little insight. He says, wisdom is justified by our children. Think about the, the, the children, the man that the wisdom of the world produces, and the man that the wisdom of Christ produces. Think about the two. Wisdom is justified by her children. She's justified By the work that God can do and wrought and change life. You know what's interesting about the two examples of John the Baptist and Jesus? They have one other thing in common. They killed them both. The one who they said was too holy. The one who they said was not holy enough. 
They killed them both, each one. What else does that say? Jesus does not call us to walk a road he didn't walk himself. Can you think about that? Jesus does not call us to walk a road he didn't walk himself. The reason why those things didn't knock Jesus off or get him off a track is because he held on to the eternal. He knew when he was standing outside of the tomb of his friend Lazarus that he was going to speak the words, Lazarus come forth, and he was going to rise from the dead. Yet what did Jesus do? He wept. Why? Because he knows what it feels like to lose somebody you love. He loved them. But he also knew something else. He's not lost. He's okay. He's with me. He's with my father. It's going to be okay. Jesus saying to John, John, I'm not coming for you. How is that any different than Jesus in the garden of Gatshmone crying out to his father, Lord, if you are willing, this cup can pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, your will be done. He knows what it's like to hear, this is the road. This is the journey. This is the path. And you're going to finish your race. Every one of us will. But if we can hold on to the eternal, if we can hold on to, to that which is lasting and true, to the promises of God, to the promises of God that say, and we know all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. The promise that says, for I do not consider it worthy to be, com- to be compared as present suffering with the glory which shall be revealed in you. We hold on to the promise that says, nothing can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus my Lord. See, God says, I value my word above all my name. That's God saying, I will keep my promise. I will do what I said I would do. Will you hold on to my word? Will you grab it with both hands and say, I believe? I believe even though God doesn't answer me. You notice God didn't answer John, right? Lord, why am I here? Are you the one or shall we wait for another? He said, just tell him what's going on. Tell him not to be offended because of me. But John, your road ends in that prison. My road ends somewhere too. And the road of my children. And the road of my wife. And the road and the walk of every person I love. The the psalm says in Psalm 139 that the Lord knows our rising up. That's the day we're born. And He knows our lying down. That's the day we go home. He knows the whole thing. The end from the beginning. And he says, not only that, but I know every thought you think. And I love you. I know everything you've ever done. And I still love you. I know every doubt you've ever felt. And I still love you. He said, I I know everything that I want to do in your life. All the good things. All the blessings that I want to pour out in your life. I know all those things. And I love you. But sometimes we can be like the children that he's talking about. And we, we're not joyful in the times of joy. And we're not satisfied in, in either when God brings joy or when we go through times of suffering and mourning. I don't want to be a person who's never satisfied. Paul said, I have learned in all things... To learn to be satisfied. For godliness with contentment is great gain. I have learned to abound 
And I have learned to be abased. I have learned to win. I have learned to lose. For me to live as Christ. But to die is gain. It's all the truth of God's word. If it can find that place within us, that we can use it as that anchor that God wants us to use it as. Because as the Lord lays this out, hey, you were never satisfied, and you killed both John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. One, because you said he's too holy. One, because you said he's not holy enough. And then Jesus begins, notice that this teaching has changed. Now the word, instead of blessed be, now the word is woe to He goes on to say, he began to rebuke the cities in which most of the mighty works have been done because they didn't change. Miracles don't change people. Learning to trust in and have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ does. Miracles don't change people. People, having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ does. He says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Tyre and Sidon are ancient Gentile cities that date back to the book of Genesis. And the Lord says of Tyre and Sidon, these ancient pagan Gentile cities, if I had come to them and done in them what I have done in you, they would have changed. But you don't change. Each of these cities is a city around the Sea of Galilee. Four main cities around the Sea of Galilee. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Tiberias, and Capernaum. Three of them are mentioned here in the woes. When you go to Israel, you will see the ruins of three of them. The only city that still remains standing is not one that Jesus said woe to. That's Tiberius. It's still there. The others have fallen. He says, but I say in verse 22, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. The Lord is laying out to whom much is given, much is required. The greater the revelation, the greater the responsibility He lays out for us that there are degrees of judgment, degrees of punishment, and there will be degrees of reward. There are degrees. He says, hey, Tyre and Sidon, it's going to actually be better for them. It doesn't mean it's going to be good. It just means it's going to be better for them than it's going to be for you guys. Because you guys had Messiah. You had God himself in the flesh walking your streets. And you said, he's a wine-bibber and a glutton. He's always hanging out with the low people. He's a sinner. He hangs out with sinners. You gotta be. Jesus said it'd be better for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment. In verse 23, and for you, Capernaum, that's where Jesus centered all of his ministry around the Sea of Galilee. He says, Who are exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to the grave. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would remain until this day. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. The greater the revelation, the greater the responsibility. Yet even there in Capernaum, who had the presence of Almighty God... Every man, woman, and child couldn't have a published the word of God in their home. Every man, woman, and child couldn't turn on the radio at any time and find someone sharing the truth of God's word. 
Every man, woman, and child couldn't turn on a TV and find someone preaching or teaching the Word of God. The greater the revelation, the greater the responsibility. God has gifted us in this time with so much to whom much is given, much is required. To live for, to be who God wants us to be, to not hear the woes of the Lord Jesus. Because even as he gives these woes and as he's turning his attention and as the people have begun the rejection of his message and the rejection of his prophet and the the rejection of everything that he is, Jesus then turns in verse 25 and he says, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. You're hidden them from the men who, women who think they have all the answers to all life's questions, and rather you've given it to the simple, humble person. Not to the one who thinks so much of himself, but to the one who recognizes and realizes who God is. And Jesus says, even so, Father, it seems right, it seems good in your sight. For all things have been delivered to me by my Father. Careful study of the Greek reveals to us that all things means all things. Does that mean there's something that's not been delivered to him? Nope. Because it says what? All things. That would be everything. All things have been delivered to me by my Father and no one knows the Son Except the Father. What Jesus is saying is, there is a special relationship that we can't grasp between the Father and the Son. Is that a shock to us? We've been struggling for the, since the existence of the church with the concept of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, no one knows the Son except the Father. Jesus says there's a special relationship. He said to Thomas, I go to your father and what's he say? My father. He doesn't say our father. Why? Because it's a different relationship. It's a different relationship that the son has with the father than that relationship that we have. We're adopted. He is As we look at the scripture, Jesus is laying out for us here. Hey, I have a special relationship with the Father. Different from that which anyone else has. But nor can or does anyone know the Father except the Son. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, I and the Father are one. We're the same. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The same. The same. He's together. We don't understand how all that works. Jesus says, yep, you don't. This is a relationship between me and the Father. The Father and me. This is a special relationship that we have. And then look what he says. And the one, no one knows the Father except the Son. And the one to whom the Son does what? Wills to reveal him. Strong statement of God's sovereignty. What does that mean? That God chooses who will be saved. It's written all over the pages of scripture. God chooses. He's sovereign. He is all powerful. He is in control. He is in control of everything. And so he says, hey, this is a special relationship. And no one can know this relationship except whom the Son reveals it. To the one that the Son reveals this relationship, this special relationship that we see, this relationship that he calls to those who believe that they can can receive, that they can have this special relationship through adoption. They can experience a special relationship. And people look at this and they struggle with the concept of God's sovereignty. I don't struggle with the concept of God's sovereignty. God is in control, period. Period. No man comes to the Father except through 
the son. Period. Nobody. The problem is so many people put this emphasis on the sovereignty of God and they forget what the rest of the Bible says. Sometimes you can see the sovereignty of God and human responsibility right there together. Or for example, right now. You see, no one can know this special relationship between the Son and the Father except whom the Son wills to reveal Him. So what does Jesus say next? This is not a new thought. This is the same thought. He says, come unto me, who? All you who labor and are heavy laden. You come to me. I'm the one who can reveal this special relationship, who can enter into this this unique relationship with God, whereby and wherein every struggle that we face is not wasted. Every hurt is not lost. Every opportunity brings about the goodness of God, even though it's painful, even though it's hard, even though it's, I can get you into this relationship, but it's only through me. It's only through the Lord Jesus Christ that he can enter this. And then he says, who is able come unto me, all you see, he calls everyone. Is God sovereign? Absolutely. Is God choose? Absolutely he does. And God chooses to call the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave what? That whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The sovereignty of God and human responsibility reside together. Two opposing forces that we struggle with understanding, but Jesus said you won't understand it unless you let me show it to you. Unless you let me reveal. And this is what he says. I want you to come. I want you to take. And I want you to learn. Laying out for us in these verses. These are my favorite verses in the entire Bible. I could talk forever about these verses. Don't worry. I won't. I love them. Anytime if I just sit back and think of any verse, these are the verses that come to my mind. I love these verses. He says, come to me. Come to me. That's a call. That Jesus' arms are wide open. Just like they were on the cross. His arms wide open to the world. Come to me. All ye, all, all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. That first phrase, I will give you rest, is speaking of peace with God. We come to Jesus and he gives us rest. Peace with God. Apart from that, we are at enmity with God. That means we are an enemy of God. Apart from coming to the Lord through His Son, you are an enemy of God. You are at war with Him and you will never know peace until you have peace with God. And it is only found to those who come to me. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, that peace with God. Then He says, take my yoke upon you. This is a challenge to discipleship. Don't just come to me and receive peace with God, but then take my yoke upon you. Be my disciple. Take this yoke. Put it on you. Put on this yoke that God has. Put this yoke upon you. Bind yourself to me. Take up your cross and follow me. Go on with the Lord. Don't just come, but take. Come and take that yoke. Put that yoke. And then finally he says, learn from me. Learn from me. What's a disciple supposed to do? Learn. How did he learn? 
You see, today we go to school, we write something on a board, and we try to memorize it. That's how we learn. That's a Greek model. The Hebrew model was, come and live with me. Come, follow me. Come watch how I walk. Come watch what I do. Come watch what I say. Come be with me day in and day out, and you will learn from me. That was the model that Jesus had for the disciples. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. He is the humble king. And then he says, you will find rest for what? Your souls. That's the peace of God. First we find peace with God. Then as we continue on through discipleship, we have the peace of God. That's the peace. It doesn't matter how much crazy stuff is going on, how many things are happening around us. We can have the peace of God. Because we understand we're following the humble king. We're learning from him, from his example, from what he did, from what he said, from who he is. Not because I just read the words and try to memorize them, but because I live with him. I am in him. He in me. I want to I be immersed in, consumed by the, the all-consuming fire of God. This is what we want. This is what we desire in this. And we find that peace of God that passes understanding i was just talking to dean last night the hospital he has it he says i don't know how anybody does this without the lord because he's holding on to the promises of god that's what god calls us to do finally he says my yoke is easy. His discipleship. It means it fits well. doesn't mean it's never difficult. It means it's well-fitting. When I put that yoke on, it's like, ah, oh, that feels good. I should have had that yoke on all along. What was I waiting for? Why didn't I put that yoke on? Why didn't I have this yoke of discipleship, this desire to step and follow Jesus? Because he said... If you don't want to come and follow me, if you won't take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. He said, well, you, you can come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. You can find peace with God. But he desires that that's not the end of the journey. He said, come, take, learn. Not come and go. He said, come, take, learn. My yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Ever feel like you're carrying the burden of the world? Real heavy? Guess what that means? You're not carrying the one he wants you to carry. I don't know. I can't do it. I, I don't feel like I can go another day. Listen to what Jesus said. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Call is still there. And I think sometimes we can get stuck like John the Baptist. But you see, Jesus didn't throw him out because he got stuck. He just said, John, don't be offended because of me. Trust. And so John trusts. Greatest man born of women. Yet, the least in the kingdom of heaven, that's you and I, can be greater than him. All we have to do is come, take, and learn. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you so much, Lord, for the opportunities that you give us. I thank you so much for the people and the times that you give us to spend. I thank you, God, and I, Father, I just repent of all the times we don't come before you and give you thanks for the good times. 
give you thanks for the time that we spend with people, Lord Jesus, even the ones that you've taken home. I thank you, Lord, for every conversation I ever had with Dan Marks. Thank you for every time he ever encouraged me. I thank you for every time Cindy ever smiled and made me laugh. I thank you for every time and every moment of every day that you have ever given me with another person that I care about and love. And I'm sorry I don't appreciate them until now. So God, I just pray, help us. Help us hold on to your promises. Help us grab a hold with both hands and say, Oh, Lord Jesus, I know, I know that these things are true. I don't care what it looks like. I know my heart hurts, but it hurts for me. It hurts for the family. But Lord, you say, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Come to me. God, I pray that that's what we would do. We come to you. That we would take your yoke. That we would learn from you. That we would walk as you walk. That we would be who you call us to be. That we would be who we are. In Christ Jesus. And God that you would be glorified in the lives that we live before you. That we would hold on to the eternal. And not to the temporal. That we would realize that this world is not my home. That's why it doesn't matter how much stuff I buy. It doesn't make me happy. The only thing that can make me happy Even as Abraham said, Lord, the only thing that can make me happy is to come to a city whose maker and builder is God. That has foundations. It will never go away. It will always be there. It will never fail. Lord, that city, that place that will never fail, that's your word. For not one jot or tittle will pass away until all these things have been fulfilled. It's solid ground that we can stand on. So, Lord, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock. For he is higher than I. He is God the Word, the Son, my rock, my strong foundation, my strong tower. Lord, I just pray. God, that we would cling to you with everything that we have. And we would fight the good fight of faith. We would believe what your word says. And we would cling to that truth. And one day, when our race is done, we will look into your beautiful eyes and we'll see the scars upon your face and the nail prints in your hand and we will hear well done Lord may we live a life worthy of the calling with which we have been called may we follow you with our whole heart and if we have to come to you 10,000 times because we're laboring and heavy laden. Help us lay that burden down before you and put your yoke upon us and walk where you walk so that you may be glorified in the lives that we live for you. Until that day, May we occupy until you come, for there can be no kingdom without a king. And you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to close out this morning with a word of worship. And as we worship, I want to invite you... 
the Lord spoke to your heart or there's something going on that you need prayer about, we're going to have the prayer counselors around the room uh, making themselves available to pray with you. And, and if you would, if the Lord lays something on your heart or you want to remember to pray for someone, I encourage you to come up and, and pray with them. Please remember the Reynolds family as they go through this time. They're not alone. Several families that are facing similar issues within the church body here. So I encourage you to be uh, just lifting them up in prayer that God would give them the strength that they need to finish that journey. Amen.
Lord, you are our all in all. Lord, you're all that we need. Lord, as uh, John was sitting in the prison, he had to make that choice, Lord. Will I finish my race that you set before me? Lord, you set a race between, in front of each one of us, Lord. Lord, help us to run with endurance, Lord, that race you, you've set before us. Help us to learn from you and walk with you, Lord God. Go with us. Give us your spirit, Lord, to finish our race. In Jesus' name, amen.